A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Lisa Harding on her novel Bright Burning Things, which is just out in paperback. Lisa Harding is a writer, actress and playwright. Her previous novel, Harvesting, was a bestseller in Ireland won the Kate O'Brien Award and has been optioned by Out of Orbit Films to be directed by the director of Derry Girls. And Lisa's new novel, which we're going to talk about today, is Bright Burning Things. Lisa, welcome to Little Atoms. Yeah, thanks a million for having me. Lovely to be here. Um, first of all, tell us how you would describe Bright Burning Things. How I would describe it. I think it's an interior monologue told from the perspective of an actress who is no longer acting, who is now a young mum and she's in the throes of addiction to alcohol. She's a very addictive personality, but it's not a, a kind of classic tale of recovery. It's a story of, it is a journey. There is a journey she goes on, but you know, it's kind of about her learning to manage her impulses her own way. Sonia is a, a narrator then. Tell us something about who she is. Okay, so Sonia's, um, she's kind of early 30s. She's from Dublin. She is a really talented actress whose acting career has stopped because she became pregnant and she's on her own. She's back in Dublin. She's very isolated when we meet her. She's fully in the throes of an addiction to alcohol that has kind of, you know, over time has crept up on her. And now she's living on her own with this little boy who's just four. He's turning five. And she's not coping very well with motherhood she can't actually remember really her own mum. She died when she was eight. So she's a lot of um, past trauma and everything kind of hits her. At the beginning of the novel, it's a very heightened moment because she started to get quite manic. And it's also the charge, the creative charge that's been blocked. I think, you know, I know that feeling because I was an actress myself and it stopped, it all stopped and it was horrific. So, you know, she uses booze in the beginning to kind of recreate the highs and also to try to soothe herself. But it takes over her. And when we meet her, it absolutely has taken over her life. And, you know, I'm, I grew up with addiction and I, you know, love people very close to me who, who have serious addiction. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a love poem to her in a weird way. I know it's a pretty hard hitting book, but I, I adore her. You know, I got to really feel for her struggle. Not everyone adores her, but I do. Yes, I guess, I mean, a, 
a bit of a cliche perhaps to say that, you know, a lot of people that are in the arts, that are actors, suffer from, you know, mental illness or substance abuse. And these things are inextricably linked to their their craft. And so to what extent with Sonia is the substance abuse issues that she is having Latterly, first of all, we'll talk about how it's linked to motherhood later on, but to what extent is that linked to her not being acting, not having an outlet? Yeah, I think massively. And it's actually because I I faced a void in my own life, you know, about eight years ago. And for a variety of reasons, you know, it's a tough, tough, tough career. And women reach a certain age or stage in life. And, you know, it can really, really get difficult. And I think it is an interesting one about the artistic impulse and where it comes from. But it's such, um, it is such a charge and it can be so helpful, you know, when you're needing to, I guess, express certain perhaps trauma I mean I was thinking back to like when I was in drama school and and training as a young actress and there were 18 of us and there wasn't one of us now this is only 18 people but from a a home that were still you know everybody was from broken homes and there was so much chaos among us and we were young and we were all very, very highly charged and I'd say very ungrounded. And then that kind of continued, you know, throughout my career. But really the real danger is when you can't express that impulse, I think. And that's, you know, that's where, because it can be an addictive charge, definitely an, an addictive impulse. It was for me anyway. I needed that high of attention, kind of getting out of my skin, getting out of my head, you know, stepping into other people's skins and shoes and just not living this life. And it's very similar to being addicted to a substance for me, not for everybody. Quite a few actors I know and performers in general. This is a it's a first person narration. We are very close. It's a very sort of close position that we have within Sonia's head. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on but you know we only know her perspective about what's going on in the story but bearing that in mind let's talk about what her life was like before so when she was an actress she was in London working what was that life like? Well I think so I mean she was a brilliant actress she did a lot of classical theatre and she was really excellent she came from suburban Dublin and you know went to Rada and it all went very fast she had a lot of success young but she always had this kind of sense of needing more 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 and you know there were the wrong kind of sorts of men she had this addictive personality that latched on to the high of attention the high of attention from men from you know stage um but really could never do normal life like um whatever that means but just couldn't the kind of the depressive episodes this is you know how i see her it's also what i experienced in between doing shows you know, were pretty extreme. And then when it all stopped forcibly, she'd know where to put it all. And um, she's pretty, she's pretty highly charged with her little boy. <laughs> she's pretty addicted to him too, but she does feel, and she feels things too intensely. And acting can be an amazing outlet for that, I guess, you know, you can channel all these different impulses. And, um, but at the moment we meet her, she has nowhere to put it. You know, she doesn't have any, any other outlet at all, except motherhood, which she isn't doing very well at. Well, let's talk about why it stopped then. So how she ends up where she is. So she's at this point in the Dublin suburbs with a four-year-old son. Let's talk about how she ends up there. Well, she ends up there because she kind of in her 
in her mind, she, her partner, her then partner, he's also an actor and he does say, I don't want this. You know, I don't mm. want this pregnancy. You're not mother material. It's not going to work out. And she almost does it to kind of thwart him. Well, also she thinks in a very, she has a kind of glamorous sense of what it's going to be to be, you know, a mother. She, she glamorizes it and she romanticizes it. And in a way in her head, she's playing a role. And then the reality is in London, she's very little real support none in fact and financially you know she's been living on the brink for years so she comes back to Dublin because even though she does she's a really stressed relationship with her father there is a little um cottage there in Dublin that she can live in and that's why she goes back because she can't afford to live in London she lives on the dole in Dublin and she has somewhere to live but no support yeah I mean you said you just said there about you know the idea that she she's almost playing a role to begin with, of motherhood. Mm. And I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about how she's taken that sort of charge that she gets from the stage to begin with into motherhood. Yeah, I mean, no doubt she, you know, she romanticises it and really from the very beginning doesn't cope very well and doesn't get supports. And, you know, I've seen it with a couple of my friends who are single mothers and I'm always amazed. I think there's something around the middle class experience where, you know, kids can actually be genuinely kind of in danger, but, you know, nobody is going to intervene. And I think it is a class thing. I, you know, I, I do have a friend who's had addiction issues and she's two little kids and she's on her own. And, you know, we've all watched her and worried and had to get involved at various points. But, I thought that thing about Sonia, she adores her little boy, but it's not, it's kind of, you know, everything with her is hypersaturated. So she can't really grapple with what it means to be, you know, an everyday mother. And so the poor little, like he's, he's, he's four and I kind of do, you know, and it does happen quite a lot. Like you think, you know, sometimes how do kids survive? They're amazingly resilient. She loves him. She feeds him when she remembers she was better, I think, when he was younger. But as he's got older, the alcohol has taken more of a hold over her. And he's at four. He's far too vigilant and he's kind of very responsible. You know, he's turning five and he knows to like he gives her water in the morning if she's hung over. And, you know, he, he looks after the big dog and the big dog looks after him. But yeah, she does play a lot of games with him. She has an amazing imagination. And so in her mania, they have a lot of fun. They have a lot of fun, but it's always a knife edge. And she plays different parts with him. And he, he's like a little parrot. Like he knows some of the her favorite monologues and, you know, duologues. And yeah, so he's he's kind of, he adores her and he has so much fun with her. But it, he's equally, he's always on edge, this little character himself. So I was going to talk about the class element later on but you've raised it now so let's so let's do it now so mm. I've seen a lot of the marketing around this book has been very much like if you love Chuggy Bane you'll like this <laughs> and you know there's a a central woman character who likes the booze <laughs> in know, both exactly um, apparently uh, boozy is... women are having their literary moments <laughs> yeah. that was something <laughs> um, but this is a very different proposition not least because you know we're talking about a, a middle class person here and yeah. and as you said there's very much an element here of, of where she could get away with a certain amount of latitude in, in, into how she raises Tommy because of who yeah. she is I'm, I'm sort of particularly thinking here of, of she's very obs like he has a terrible diet Tommy has, mm. has has the worst diet for a child, but she's very much obsessed. You know, she's like, he doesn't eat meat. He's, you know, and that seems to be something that, you know, a, 
a woman from her background can get away with like you know I'm bring, I'm raising my son as a vegetarian because yeah. I don't believe he should be eating meat and meat is murder and all of this and yet yeah. the poor lad lives on fish fingers no I know I mean her food politics are really messed up she she's but that she that thing about like her you know attaching to the intense suffering of animals like mm-hmm. I, I do that and it can keep me awake sometimes and I do, I think sometimes you know, the looping mind can attach to anything. So I don't think it's a trendy choice for her. I think she's genuinely, utterly confused. And she goes to the supermarket and has panic attacks because, you know, there's meat products everywhere and she just doesn't know what to feed him. And he's got to the point where he'll only eat orange food and she lets him, you know. And I remember there was a stage in my life where I would only eat cornflakes and I was allowed. (laughs) So it's like, and I was was remembering that and I thought, you know, so he'll eat marmalade and he'll eat fish fingers and she doesn't tell him that they're fish. Like, yeah, it's completely messed up her relationship to food. And he'll eat um, cheese and, you know, dairy products. She says no way. So, you know, she won't allow him have cow's milk. So it's, yeah, it's very confused in her head. And (laughs) he basically eats whatever he likes, you know, as long as it's orange. Tell us something else about the sort of Dublin suburbs milieu that that she inhabits as well. You know, her her tipple is obviously... uh, white wine you know which yeah. is which is, is is not your um your obvious choice Typical for alcoholic. your alcoholic yeah. well you know it is for a lot of uh, and i think it, it i think it's actually a really dangerous um alcohol addiction white wine and you know i've seen it in my own family and because it's kind of regarded as as you say like it's it you know it's not vodka and it's not it's not you know the pure stuff it's not the stuff mm-hmm. that allegedly rips your stomach out but it does if you drink enough of it and you know she's on the two to three bottles of wine a night and she doesn't eat she's completely she's got the weirdest relationship to food as we said and she's she she kind of loves to spin out from lack of food she's hypoglycemic and white wine like I know myself you know white wine has always had this weird effect on my brain you know they call it the white witch and the white bitch and you know I don't know whether women and white wine particularly can be a little bit lethal and you may have heard this about the chardonnay like that <laughs> i don't know if it's something to do with the hormonal mixture but it is actually kind of a lethal drink and if you're drinking it on your own at home bottles of it and she's stealing it at this stage you know she's still convincing herself there's some kind of decorum to the whole thing i think and that's why she's such a hard time when she goes into that particular rehab she goes into because the rest of them are on the hard stuff so you know she's like I just drink the whiny wine like that's that's my thing but it's actually very addictive and chemically can be very very strong she definitely has that reaction you know the turn yeah the middle class white wine alcoholic they exist hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lisa Harding, and we're talking about her new novel, Bright Burning Things. And Lisa, as I said, Sonia is she's it's a first person narration, and we are in her head all the time, and it's quite intense. And I want to talk about how you created this character and just writing this character. Yeah, she's she is a bit exhausting, isn't she? Um Funny you say this because I had written her as a third person from the perspective, so the she, right, for a long time because I thought, oh my God, it's so intense. And I, yeah, I I felt it needed a little bit of distance. And then I had little parts of the novel interspersed with the first person from the little boy's perspective. And it was really more his story in the beginning. And then over time, to be honest, I don't know, but I think by about the sixth draft, I realized this is so, I was playing with that whole free indirect speech, you know, third person right inside. But then I realized it's actually, it has to be a first person narrative because it is a monologue. And so once I kind of went right into the eye, I felt like that was it. I had climbed inside her shoes and inhabited her. And she was, I felt completely possessed by her. Like, and I felt, you know, I kind (laughs) of, I went to the maddest point in my own life when I was writing her. And now that we've all gone through the pandemic, we're going through it. And, you know, I live alone and that kind of intense isolation and needing, yeah, needing something to kind of break the intensity. I feel like a lot of people are are reading her and relating in a way they may not have you mm. know, over a year ago. This kind of obsessive looping, the head just going round and having nothing to interrupt it. So yeah, first person is, it comes very naturally to me. I think it's because I is my training as an actress, you know, so it it is a monologue really. And it's easy for me to do voice. It's it's what I do. You know, it's what I do naturally. So I think I was fighting it in the beginning. And then I just thought, no, this is what it is. It is a first person and it is present tense. You've mentioned a few things over the course of the interview, but I, I want to talk about sort of where else she comes from. Who else inspired Sonia? Yeah, she's kind of a composite of people I love in my own family, me and friends. And so 
she wasn't that much of a reach. I mean, she is extreme and she's kind of the most extreme elements of, you know, all these people that I love and and the extreme elements in me. But yeah, she's quite close to me, I think. I'm okay though. <laughs> <laughs> not a mother, you know. Mm. No, you, I mean, you're not a mother, which is, which is interesting thing. because you write so... I mean, this is so intense about the you know the concept of motherhood in this book, um, both mm. from both from Sonia's own perspective in terms of her bond with Tommy, um, which you know for all her faults is you know she she loves him she's mm. she's potentially a, a a brilliant mother even though you know she's she's sort of fighting herself all the time. Yeah, let's talk about I guess you know, some of the ideas of, of motherhood in the book, because she's obviously, she's a single parent. Mm. She's chosen to do this basically in, you know, as you said, in some respects for the wrong reasons, but, you know, now, you know, she is where she is. She, she's a mother, she's struggling, but, you know, uh, trying to do her best to mm. raise her son. And there are all these other people. So the men in her life, for a start, Howard, who was the, the father um, her own estranged father, um, you know, the woman over the road. There are all these people <laughs> around her that are trying to tell her what to do, trying to control her. Tell us yeah. something about this exploration of single motherhood in the book. It's funny, isn't it? Because I, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't even know when I started out writing it, although he appears in the first scene, that she's a mother I think I think I pose that question to myself along the way what if you know at certain points in my life what if and then I have a younger brother that I very much has I have kind of been his mother his mother figure really all all our lives and so I also he has had very serious addiction and he still he still does and he, you know he's fine with me talking about it he he's very open about it and he has been in and out of these places you know this particular rehab that we can talk about again but you know that's run by the religious charity because they're free in Ireland and I met a particular woman in there twice when he was in there and she really just caught my heart and she was a single mother to three kids and you know was so 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 vulnerable and so beautiful like as a person but so incapable and I just my heart was broken for those kids they were in and out of foster care you know she really really adored them but she couldn't look after herself so she really caught my heart that woman and then I did I did think you know my own relationship to mothering why I never chose to mother you know I was very 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 frightened of being a mother actually I was very frightened of what I might you know hand down but Sonia doesn't do that she doesn't stop to think am I am I capable you know I, I can I do this it, she just jumps and I think you know parenthood's it's a really tough tough road and who does it right but the, you know there's various degrees of damage and I think she just hasn't experienced her own mothering she doesn't know how to look after herself there's you know a surplus of love there and she is quite magical at times with her little boy but it's dangerous and you know that that exists I mean it exists a lot more than we want to I think well you know, she is aware of that admit. though because the book does explore the idea of sort of intergenerational like you know the cycle trauma, yeah. of, cycle of abuse intergenerational trauma and mm. and she is very aware that you know, she mm. is the scene where she's where she's in the um she's in the rehab and she's looking at the other people and thinking about the fact that she's gonna be the mother to a to a kid that she's gonna pass on problems to. 
Yeah, she is very, I think, and in a way like that, that awareness, you know, and that um, kind of inner voice is she's very intelligent and she's always analyzing and questioning herself. And she actually kind of knows everything intellectually, but it's her deep, deep impulses. And is that trauma? You know, it's it's a really interesting field, isn't it? Like, what is that thing that just makes us act in a certain way, even when even when we know it all, even when we have all the awareness in the world? And she is a very bright woman. But her, she's kind of taken over at points in her life. And when we meet her first, she's absolutely in the throes of this compulsion. It's, a, it's an absolute compulsion. And no matter what she tells herself, you know, it's the nature of addiction. It's, it's, a, really, it's a really exhausting thing to live with. You know, a head that is very intelligent and can articulate and analyze and, and yet destroys yourself at the same time and those around you. So... Yeah, I think not everybody has that level of awareness, but I certainly know, you know, people that I love that suffer addiction do. And it's really, it's a real struggle. So let's, let's talk a bit more about the, um, as you sort of raised it, the rehab process in Ireland. Obviously, this is something that Sonia goes through in the book. Mm. Um, so what is that? What is the setup there like? Well, basically, if you don't have private health insurance or nobody can pay, right? Because, I mean, I've yeah, it's 12 to kind of 15,000 to do um, a private rehab where you get you get psychiatrically assessed and you get it's more person centered, you know, approach. So the only free rehab, we don't have state rehab. Um, I don't know what it's like in England, actually, but the only free rehab we have are offered by various religious charities. And the one that I send Sonia too is one that we have all around Ireland, various different centres. And, you know, the heart of the place is, is really, it's in the right place, um, but it's, it's religious. And they still actually say the rosary. And, you know, people who have absolutely no Catholic, you know, uh, leanings whatsoever still say the rosary in these places. And it's all 12 steps. So it's all about God. And it's, it's quite a Catholic ethos. So obviously it's not working for most people, but there is, I mean, I didn't want to completely, you know, go down on it because it's, it offers, it's the only place that will kind of pick people literally out of prison off the streets or who have no money. And I think Sonia definitely gets something in there. You know, she, she grapples with a kind of spiritual connection and what it might mean. And it's a tricky one, but I think all recovery from addiction, there is some element of, you know, a spiritual belief, but she never gets a chance to sit down and talk about, you know, her own individual makeup or her own history. And, you know, that's been my experience. And I've been kind of astounded at it, to be honest. One more thing, and then I'll ask you to read a bit, if you would. Um, yeah. I mentioned at the beginning that Harvesting, your debut novel, is in the process of, of being turned into a, into a film. What's going on there? So we're actually, uh, so Michael Lennox, he's the director of Dairy Girls, and I are now co-writing. Initially, it was me, um, but I, I have never written script before, and it's fantastic. I wrote lots of versions myself, but he has come in on this last draft, and it's great. So we've got funded through Out of Orbit, and I don't know if you know this Irish director, Marco Halloran. He's our kind of advisor. He worked on Normal People, and he's a beautiful, mm-hmm. um, he's a beautiful filmmaker himself. So... It's a great team and it's nice to be part of a team again because, you know, I haven't been acting in so long and it's lovely to be, yeah, it's lovely to be in a group of people and have different heads. But it's, it's, been, a t- it's been a tough process. It's, it's uh, adapting your own stuff for a different medium, you know, because it, it requires an entirely different approach. 
film mm -hmm. to the book, the novel form. To finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? So this is pretty self-explanatory. It's just a little teeny um, monologue from Sonia's perspective. Speed helps. I've always known this in whatever form it comes. Running used to do it, sprinting, then amphetamines. Anything that sped me up helped me outrun the voices. The kick of performing did it. Let me step outside of myself. My only awareness, the pulsing of blood in my throat, wrists, veins, popping and dancing, swimming, fucking oblivion. Roberto taught me the feeling of speed behind a wheel, usually some kind of Ferrari. Granted, this old jalopy couldn't exactly break speed barriers, but it helps. The car shaking, loose parts rattling, the engine roaring. It creates an illusion of winning, of outsmarting the shadows, outrunning the curses, anything that lifts me out of myself, even for a sweet, blessed moment, even the blaring of the horn in the opposite lane, the car swerving to avoid me. My breath is caught high in my chest and I feel turned on, like when Roberto would take me in a public toilet. I catch a glimpse of my son in the rearview mirror, jumping up and down in his seat, rocking against the belt, testing its limits. Beginning of a little addict there, probably. <laughs> Poor little fella. <laughs> Poor lad. So I've been talking to Lisa Harding. We've been talking about her new book, Bright Burning Things, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much, Neil. Great to chat. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.